Welcome back to the Horror You Know podcast. I'm Darren. I'm Trent. I'm Ian. And we are the Three Amigos. Hey! <laughs> We're minus Ian, uh, Ian Wells, so. Yeah. We miss you, buddy. He's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> Gone but not forgotten. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> Why do you hear right, Trent's kind of disappointed. He's like, he's not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to return that tombstone. <laughs> wow. All right. So anyway, we uh we haven't podcasted for a while, so it's kind of cool to be back, but we're in kind of a new setup here because of Trent's family going on vacation and one of his family members caught the old Sovid. So we are yeah. online on a phone. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I, this, is, I this has been very interesting so far, and we just started. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that's my bad, guys. I'm sorry. But <laughs> yeah, we're how powering through for the fans. Well, part of, part of the uh, problems, I'm, I'm basically a end-of-the-world end-times prepper, and I live out in the middle of the country <laughs> with no internet. Means is a Luddite, so he has no oh, internet yeah. or technology. None whatsoever. I churn my own butter too. You know what I'm saying. That's what happens when he lives out there on that sheep farm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> was that a so lamb anyway, or a goat? I couldn't tell. It was supposed to, it was supposed to be a sheep. Oh, okay. It was getting attacked by a goat. Anyway, that was the farmer. <laughs> yeah, get him, girls. <laughs> So this week, our film is Natural Born Killers, uh, classic Oliver Stone film. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And Mickey and Mallory. Of course, you guys remember them from the movie. A uh, little, little aside here, the good old boy that played Mickey, you guys know who he is, correct? Oh, Woody. Yes, that's a Woody. Oh, <laughs> oh, Woodrow. Woodrow Wilson Harrelson. Yeah. He... he uh, he went to Hanover College over here, smoked hey. weed all the time, and was in the theater department. So we have Hanover a local College. hero tonight. That's right. And fun fact, he came back to Hanover, what's it been, a couple, three, four years now, and I went out there and saw him kind of, I don't know, give a speech. I don't know what it was really about, if he was getting like an honorary degree or what it was for, but got to see him in person, so that was pretty cool. That's awesome. Did he actually graduate from there? Or? I don't think he did, but I could be wrong on that. I mean, he was on Cheers, I think, right after he was at Hanover College, they said. so. Yeah. And was his young. character from Hanover, too, on the show? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it didn't make us look too good. Did did, he, <laughs> did they specify Hanover? I thought he just said, yeah, I was from a small town. I was from a, I was, what do you say? I was raised on a small farm in Indiana is what I thought he said. No, he actually specifies quite often Hanover, Indiana. So, mm-hmm. yeah. He says it a few times. So we're going to be talking about that. And these killings, this movie is loosely inspired by an actual 
serial killer couple. And I'm going to go off the rails here this time because my research led me to that first. Um, but the reason I'm going off that is because we have another couple movies based on those same killers. So I'm going to briefly talk about them, but then I'm going to do something totally different that we haven't really done before and talk about the crimes that this movie actually inspired. Okay. So, so it's going to be a little different. So it's a, guys re- it's a good thing. Wells is not here tonight is what you're saying. So he doesn't probably. get any more inspiration. <laughs> He's probably home uh, worshiping Pazul or something right now. So, <laughs> so anyway, did, did this is Zool? Uh, Zool from Ghostbusters. <laughs> no, I said Pazul, mm. which is about the same. <laughs> so this is about Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. They were two ne- teenagers from uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, I think it was, or a little town right outside of Lincoln. Um, and their kind of their trajectory follows the same broader points as Mickey and Mallory's throughout the movie, even though that movie is very over the top. Uh, if you notice in the movie, it all happens fairly quickly. You know, he meets her. They basically kill her dad and take off. And I mean, it just goes pretty quick. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of happened a little bit with that family. And I'll, I'll talk more about that later on but over the course of 10 days in 1958 this pair took nine different lives during a destructive road road trip across you know three states Mm. so much like Woody Harrelson's Mickey uh, Charles Starkweather appeared to be the ringleader and Fugate's own family was even taken out and had to pay the price of getting to know this young man the two were eventually apprehended and arrested, but their story was notable, especially in the 1950s, before most violent crimes were commonplace, as it has become in these modern times, kind of. So uh, they're not serial killers, though, and there's a, I wanted to make a distinct difference because my favorite Netflix show is Manhunter, and if Netflix ever has the balls to bring it back, uh, <laughs> maybe we'll see some more cool you know, seasons of that, but... On that show, it actually talks a lot about the difference between spree killers and serial killers. So the difference being a spree killer is somebody that literally has nobody in mind. Uh, They don't stalk them out. They don't uh, take them hostage and do anything to them. It's, It's basically they just go on a rampage and it's all about the thrill of, you know, just the violence of the crime and just being able to do whatever the fuck they want. So Okay, so not spree killing. Not to interrupt or correct you, but you said Manhunter. Is that the name of it or is it Mindhunter? Mindhunter. Okay. I've seen Mindhunter. I just want to make might, sure. I might, I might have said Manhunter. Sorry, I, I yeah, just want to make sure. There actually is a movie called Manhunter. Yeah, yeah I wanted Mind to make, I wanted to make, make sure that, that was a show. And that's an excellent show, by the way. I love that show. I thought love you said that show. I thought you said Man Eater and I had the Hall and Oates song in my mind <laughs> the whole time. I was way off. In that now uh, I've got Mindhunter is now uh, I've got his mustache. <laughs> David Fincher. Uh, yes, I think so. Yes, S- same director as uh, Zodiac. Yes, he likes him okay. a good serial killer. Well, well, and Manhunter well, actually was about the uh, first book in the Red Dragon series, so oh, that's probably okay. why I got those two confused. Yeah. 
that came out before Silence of the Lambs. Yes. So, uh, you think they'll hire David Fincher to tell the story of Wells? I think that'd be quite the honor, don't you think? That would be. I think so. I'd watch that movie, even if we were. <laughs> we might have been the victims. We might not be alive <laughs> to watch it, but. <laughs> well, Spike Lee might beat him to it, but you never know. <laughs> it's true. Oh God. Let's, let's hope not. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. So anyway, we're going to revisit this story at a later episode because there's a lot that goes into that, you know, nine lives during a 10-day period story. (laughs) It's very quick, very violent. But uh, we're going to kind of revisit that. I just wanted you guys to keep in mind the Natural Born Killers, Mickey and Mallory, were loosely inspired by those two So when they wrote this script. Okay. What's interesting, though, is this film is considered one of the most controversial films of all time. And by that, I mean, there are, there are quite a few films that were controversial, but there were a select few that actually everybody talked about because it affected society. If I'm saying that right. Uh, one would be the exorcist. Okay. So the mm-hmm. original exorcist, which we've already talked about on this pod- podcast and episode 28, 29, somewhere in there. Uh, Go back in the archives. Check that one out. But anyway, another one would be um, Psycho. We talked about that early on. And then this one would be probably a little different because it didn't make big box office like the other two did. What's crazy about this one, though, was it had such an underground cult following at the time. Uh, that it actually inspired other spree crimes, okay? Mm. And that's what we're going to talk about. So it's kind of kind of interesting that this was such a high-profile movie, or I wouldn't say high-profile movie, low-profile pro- movie that got uh, people up in arms again about censorship and stuff like that because of what, happened after the movie came out. So it's very interesting. Uh, So we're going to talk, first case, we're going to talk about Sarah Edmondson and Benjamin Darris Crimes. Have you heard about that one? Mm -mm. Negative. All right. All right. Here we go. Uh, This was a high-profile case that erupted in 1995. So this was not too long after the movie. Um, A woman of a prominent family referred to by many as the Kennedys of Oklahoma I don't know what that means. Maybe they had an in-ground pool. <laughs> yes. The, the fucking Kennedys of Oklahoma sounds a little bougie for that state, but whatever. Anyway, along with her uh, Taluqua high school dropout boyfriend, they went on a crime spree inspired by the movie Natural Born Killers. In 1995, Sarah Edmondson and Benjamin James Darris, both 18 at the time, met and... Toluca and quickly became inseparable. The two spent the night of March 5th, 1995 at uh, Sarah's house, Sarah's cabin. She had a cabin um, in Welling, and they were taking acid, just dropping LSD all night, and repeatedly watched Natural Born Killers. Oh, God. (laughs) God. I felt like I was on acid, and I wasn't when I watched this movie. That's, yeah, that's not a good fucking combo to start off your date night, right? Yeah. Well, I, I usually now, for, hold on. <laughs> I usually opt for a couple of beers, maybe some uh, popcorn, 
Jiffy Pop something? <laughs> nope. Straight to LSD. So anyway, they took LSD, repeatedly watched it all night long, and the uh, they were about ready to go on a multi-state killing spree, basically, th this group was. Uh, so Edmonds and Darius decided to drive to Memphis the next day to attend a Grateful Dead concert. Now, I'm not a dead fan. I'm not a deadhead. Uh, I respect that people are because I like musical tastes. But at the same time, I would never drive from Oklahoma to Memphis, Tennessee to see the Grateful Dead. It's just not me. Hmm. What about you guys? You guys deadheads? I mean, I don't mind some Grateful Dead. Like, if it's on, I'm going to bob my head. I'm going to tap my toes. <laughs> but I'm not going to, like, I, I won't be sitting here alone in my apartment and be like, you know, I'm going to throw on some, some of the dead. <laughs> they do have really cool merchandise, though, I do have to say. Yeah. And Cherry Garcia's really good flavor. So That's true. I like that. That's true. <laughs> so they went to this Grateful Dead concert, or were going to that concert. However, the concert had happened the week before. Oh, fuck. We're on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a back about a week, I think. <laughs> the pair ended up in Hernando, Mississippi. So we're talking Memphis, Tennessee. Now they're in Hernando, Mississippi. On March 7th, they arrived at Producers Gin of Hernando Incorporated, which was managed by a 58-year-old guy named Bill Savage. Uh, Darius ended up shooting Savage two times in the chest with a 38 caliber pistol. And all he took was his wallet. And I, I think that's kind of a tragedy. The dude was only 58. That's about eight years, eight and a half years older than me. And he just took his wallet. So obviously these, this 18-year-old kid was not only stoned out of his mind, but he was ready for these thrill killings right away. Hmm. So they then traveled to Ponchatoula, Louisiana. So they're backtracking back this way, back west. The next day, they stopped at a time saver convenience store. Uh, Edmondson was seen on the store's security camera walking up to 35-year-old store clerk Patsy Byers, shooting her in the head. She was critically injured when she was shot in the neck is the first shot. But she did survive, but was paralyzed for the rest of her life. Aww. Edmondson, isn't that crazy? Like, yeah, he then exited sad. the store. Yeah, 38 years old. So you got a 58-year-old and a 38-year-old that meets an 18-year-old within two days, and they're already dead and paralyzed. So the pair didn't return to o Oklahoma. They, they exited the store, returned to steal the cash. So they actually came back. That's where they saw her for the first time on a camera. The pair didn't return to Oklahoma for several weeks after the shooting, and a still photo of Edmondson's face was then released to the media. Investigators followed up on several leads, but each one hit a dead end. So you're talking 1995. There would have been cameras everywhere at this point, just like there are now, right. you know, mid-90s, like at least in liquor stores, places like that. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't think they were on every street corner. But just like today, I'm sure they were very, very poor quality. So she had to have been pretty stupid to walk right up in front of the camera for them to get a full face shot of her so the media could see who it was. Um, but it wasn't until an ex-boyfriend of hers told authorities about the store robbery and shooting. So she actually was probably bragging about it at this point. It doesn't say that in the notes that I got, but 
I'm assuming she was bragging to other kids around her. Um, so they, they told her the authorities. Agents with the Federal Bureau of Investigation went to the home of Jim and Suzanne Edmondson in Muskogee on June 2nd, 1995, said their daughter wasn't there. Agents produced an arrest warrant for her on charges of attempted first-degree murder in Louisiana. As her parents waited with agents, Jim was asked about a gun he may or may not have had. Because <laughs> it was supposed to be registered to him, but they didn't know how many guns he actually had in his household. He said right. he owned a 38 caliber pistol that should have been in the cabin in Welling. The firearm was found at the cabin and turned over to agents. Hmm. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying that's just... I don't, I don't know. I, I get it like different times, but still, it's just wild. It's like it's like he has it registered. Like they still don't know how many guns he has. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So like yeah. he, he had multiple guns, but he only registered one of them. Is that what you're saying? Well, it looks like he said he owned one gun, but they had because uh, they were looking for a 38 caliber. Yeah, that's what it was. But uh. He had other guns that he had registered. He just didn't have that one in his possession. So I don't know if the way it reads, this one was not registered. They were asking him about it. Okay, got you. So, so they, they somehow tracked her back because of her face. And then when they looked to see if he had a thirty-eight caliber, he said he had one, but it was in that cabin, which is basically where they were staying and doing LSD and watching movies. So anyway... Edmondson returned to the house around 11.30, and it was her father who turned her over to authorities. Jim read his daughter her Miranda rights before she was arrested. <laughs> uh, Edmondson's grandfather was a U.S. congressman, while her great-uncle was Oklahoma's governor and a U.S. senator. Her uncle, Drew Edmondson, was the Oklahoma attorney general at the time, and her father was the Muskogee County District Court judge. He is now the justice of the Oklahoma Supreme Court. <laughs> Did you hear all that shit? Well, that's, so the girl's grandfather, so she, what are the her great uncle, her uncle, and her father all had big time ties in the. Uh, so I'm saying, what that's are the why odds? they call them the uh, Kennedys of Oklahoma, apparently. <laughs> so Darius was also arrested and he and Sarah were taken to be questioned by authorities. Darius claimed he didn't know what Sarah was going to do when the two arrived at the convenience store in Ponchatoula. He told Sarah to go back in the store to get the money after Byers was shot. The two were extradited in July of 95 to Louisiana where they faced charges of robbery and attempted murder. Sarah was held on a $1 million bond while Darius was held on a $500,000 bond. What? I don't know why. I'm assuming they put her on a million dollar bond because of her parents and relatives. Can you, you, can, so you can do prominent. that though? Like judging by how I much don't money know. somebody I guess, has? Well, I mean, I, actually you can. I, I mean, it's up to the judge. They can put, well, actually she doesn't, they don't, they don't even have to bond out. I don't know why they, they're bonding out because they killed people, but. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's crazy. That's, you would think it would be no bond. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's murder. It's not just like but robbery was, or attempted. It's actual murder. But he was a circuit court judge at the time, and now he's like on the Supreme Court of their state. Anyway, at this point, Sarah's attorney contacted authorities in Hernando and told them she had information about Savage's unsolved murder. So she's about to squeal about the other murder. Sarah was interviewed on July 17th, and she told authorities how Darius 
had become infatuated with the idea of recreating his own version of natural-born killers. It subsequently transpired that Savage had been a friend of the best-selling author John Grissom. Grissom publicly accused Stone of being irresponsible in making the film, claiming that filmmakers should be held accountable for their work when it incites viewers to commit violent acts. Okay? So, so apparently... The way the way this is reading, John Grisham, you know who John Grisham is, right? Mm-hmm. The John Grisham books and everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's yes. made the about client. It's like spy stuff and all that stuff. So he accused Stone publicly of being irresponsible in making this film and claiming that they should be held accountable for inciting viewers to commit violent acts. So in July of '95, Byers took legal action against Edmondson and Darris. However, in March '96, she amended her lawsuit to include Oliver Stone and the Time Warner Company. With the advice of Grisham, Byers used a product liability claim, stating that the filmmakers knew or should have known that the film would cause and inspire people to commit crimes, such as shooting of Patsy Byers. This to me. Sounds like that a stupid argument that video games cause kids to go out and shoot people. Like same oh, argument. Exactly. And it's, it's exact stupid. Same. I'm not trying to defend Oliver Stone. We'll talk about the movie more later, I'm sure, but like come on. Well, the movie made it, me do it. Here's more of it. Grisham himself stated in an article called Unnatural Killers in the nineteen ninety six edition of Oxford American magazine, the last hope of imposing some sense on Hollywood will come through another great American tradition, the lawsuit. A case can be made that there exists a direct causal link between natural-born killers and the death of Bill Savage. It will take only one large verdict against the likes of Oliver Stone, and then the party will be over. So on July 23, 1997, on the grounds that the filmmakers and production companies are protected by the First Amendment, the case was dismissed. But Byers immediately appealed the decision, and on May 15, 1998, the Intermediate Louisiana Courts of Appeals overturned that decision, claiming that Byers did indeed have a valid case against the filmmakers. However, Byers herself died of cancer in late 1997. On March 12, 2001, Judge Robert Morrison dismissed the case on the grounds that there was no evidence that neither Time Warner nor Oliver Stone intended to incite violence in their film. In June 2002, the Louisiana Court of Appeal turned down a later appeal from Byers' attorneys, and the suit was finally officially closed. Sarah Edmondson has since been released on parole in Oklahoma, only serving less than 12 years of a 30-year sentence. Her parole will end in 2025. Uh, The boyfriend is still sitting in prison, and he is awaiting an appeal. So let's talk about that one. That's kind of a crazy one. They just... Did some LSD, watched some movies, decided they were going to go on a killing spree after the Grateful Dead. I mean, imagine if the Grateful Here's Dead was idea. actually playing. Let's <laughs> still be at the Grateful Dead concert following them around, right? Babe, what do you want to do tonight? Well, now hear me out. We drop acid, and then we go I was going to say, did they include spree? Jerry Garcia in that lawsuit for changing the concert date? I think this is his fault. I know, right? Well, I'm a little older than you guys, so I've went through at least, I'd say, three waves of this censorship shit that they try to blame media and First Amendment Amendment speech on violence. And it kind of goes back to the 
you know, if you're going to argue certain things, you know, you need to like make sure your argument is sensible. Like how many millions of people watch, watch that movie and didn't go out and kill somebody. Exactly. You know, they were just looking for like there, there was a guy that committed suicide one time by listening to, or had Ozzy Osbourne in his collection. Right. So they, since he had that song Suicide Solution, they brought him up in a lawsuit suing the record label and Ozzy Osbourne because that was one of his favorite albums. So it's a big leap to me. I mean, like if you're looking for a way to cause havoc, you're going to cause it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I don't don't agree with the, the fact that the man had an Ozzy Osbourne album, so now we're going to blame Ozzy because, well, his his music um, inspired this guy to do something. It's just like, I'm sorry, he was going to do it regardless. You're not going to sit here and tell me that he only did it because he heard that Ozzy album. Yeah. I'm not buying it. I mean, Megadeth had a song called High Speed Dirt. I'm not going to go out and jump parachuteless from a plane just to see how fast I hit the ground. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well... Not not anymore. <laughs> so, okay. So here's the second one. This one's a little closer to home, so this is kind of cool. Not cool. Tragic. Wait a minute. <laughs> tragic, but cool. It's, Tra- it's tragically closer cool. to home. And when were you boys born? Mid-80s? Early 80s? Late I was 80s? Born, I was Late born 80s. in 86. So 89. you might remember this one. Trent, you might not remember this one, but you might have heard about it. But Ian might remember this one. Michael Carneal, a.k.a. the Prayer Slayer. You remember that? <clears throat> no, Michael Carneal sounds familiar. But honestly, when you said Prayer Slayer, I, I don't. That's not ringing a bell. That was just but... something that was something the papers dubbed him. He was from Kentucky. So mm. this story happens in Kentucky. So December 1st, 1997. Michael Carneal wrapped a shotgun and a rifle and a blanket and took them to his high school, passing them off as an art project he was working on. They should sue me because I'm an art teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he also carried a loaded 22 pistol in his backpack. Carneal rode to school with his sister and arrived at approximately 7.45 a.m. When he arrived, he inserted earplugs, took the pistol out of his bag, fired eight rounds in fast succession at a youth prayer group. In the, in the lobby, three girls died while hospitalized and five others were wounded. A member of the prayer group, Benjamin Strong, testified that Carneal dropped the gun of his own accord. When he'd finished, Carneal placed his pistol on the ground, surrendering to the school principal, Bill Bond. After dropping the gun, Carneal said to Strong, kill me, please. I can't believe I just did that. So do you remember any of that? Uh I, yes, vaguely. I don't remember all the details of that, um, but yeah, because uh, that was—I mean—that was in the mid to late nineties, wasn't it? Is that what you said? Yeah, ninety ninety-seven. Okay, yeah. He was like this little bitty, like freshman, like a little red-haired boy, freckles. I want to say he had glasses. I can't. Well, there remember you go. That sure, that explains it right there. Hmm, no soul. Evil. Evil. <laughs> That's right. Sorry Red to all devil. our redheads listeners out there. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> so following his appeal, uh, this was altered to life in prison with no possibility of parole. In 1999, J. 
Jack Thompson, attorney for the parents of the murdered children, filed a $33 million lawsuit against Time Warner, Polygram Films, Palm Pictures, Island Pictures, New Line Cinema, Atari, Nintendo, and Sony Computer Entertainment. Specifically mentioned were Natural Born Killers in the 1995 film The Basketball Diary starring Leonardo DiCaprio, as well as the video games Doom and Mortal Kombat. Oh, God. Thompson argued that the films and games had encouraged Carneal to act the way he did and that Doom had provided him with excellent target practice. <laughs> oh, God. The Sorry. Case, I don't mean to laugh. That's, 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 come on. The case was dismissed in 2001. The Sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that it was simply too far of a leap from shooting characters on a video screen to shooting people in real-life classrooms. Both Thompson and the 79th United States Attorney General John Ashcroft claimed that Carnell's proficient marksmanship was due to practice in violent video games. Now, it's really was, weird. Was Duck Hunt also in the lawsuit? <laughs> yeah. It's really weird that the United States Attorney General, who also, you know, was trying to put his name out there quite a bit in the mid-90s, spoke out about this, right? So it's pretty interesting. Like, I think uh, actually our president of the United States in the 90s, which was Bill Clinton, spoke out about this kind of stuff too. Do you guys remember that video game commercial of the two kids? They're playing the game, and the one kid gets beat, and the other kid gets so mad about it, he like, follows the other kid out and beats him to death with this brick? No. no. What? <laughs> yeah, that was a commercial? It was a commercial to stop like video game violence. Suck brick, kid. <laughs> no, I don't you remember don't that. You do better than that, right kid. You're all going to lose. Yeah, but there was an actual like campaign to... Uh, to get rid of video games because they inspired violence and that was like one of their points was um was oh, yeah God. like this kid gets so mad that he loses he tracks this other kid down and beats him beats him with a brick and like he kills him <laughs> and this is like a commercial on national television jeez if i if we can find this i'll, I'll put a link up or something i'm gonna see if but i, I gotta it. i gotta i gotta check well, this out now <laughs> I'm not trying to dog Republicans out there. So if you're a Republican and you listen to our show, I'm sorry. Go ahead and dog them. Uh, I'm sorry that you're a Republican. I'm not a Democrat, but I'm sorry you're a Republican. But anyway, this is the same bullshit that they've been doing off and on for years. It's like they they act like they're the moral code of this country. And almost every single time that they come out against stuff like this, like the PMRC back in the 80s making stickers on CDs and, and music and trying to ban music. And luckily we had the wonderful D Snyder of uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> twisted sister go in front of Congress and actually like sound like he's an intelligent human being. And they, they were all flabbergasted. He, uh, he didn't believe that himself, he was smarter than them. Yeah. Very well in that, um, that, uh, that hearing. And I believe it was under the yeah. knife, wasn't it? He was talking about, he was like, yeah, yeah. He was like, everybody misinterprets the the song. Is I'm sorry, I found that commercial. And he's got, what? He's got a backup brick in his hand. A backup brick. Wait till I. Oh, Case the first brick deal. doesn't land. Is he oh, got like it a does. tiny little brick up on his thigh? And then he pees on him. I forgot oh, about that part. He did what? He pissed on him. <laughs> 
This time, this, <laughs> this has is, to be fake. This is sounding less is not a, like a real commercial. This is like Wait, a, this is probably an internet. This is an internet parody or something. <laughs> That's hilarious. We'll share that on social media sometime. I'm sending it to you right now. Faux <laughs> show. But yeah, like it did that, and then they had this in the '90s, and they've had stuff recently with like, you know people going back and forth with gun control and the people that basically the, the NRA came out with a statement that it wasn't the guns. It was more the uh, culture and they tried to start blaming video games again, which I think is total bullshit because I guarantee a lot of people that are actually into guns or into, into, you know, th- that kind of lifestyle, probably play first-player shooter games, I would say. By the way, I, I, I am I don't, pretty certain that it is, it's it's just a, it's a spoof, but it's it's still really funny, though. That's <laughs> definitely shareable. Oh, God. We'll yeah. find the real one, and we'll share the spoof, both. So, I don't know. I think, I mean, we're going to talk about another one. Because, I mean, to me, this this episode is... When I was writing this, like instead of me talking about the serial killers, I wanted to talk about this because we're going through the uh, tragic uh, shootings again and just just a bunch of craziness is happening in in America right now. And I don't want to get real political, but at the same time, I want I want it to be known I'm against censorship of of this nature. I think we ought to use common sense, like even with gun control, we ought to find a way to to have common sense in, in the laws we pass and not let things be open. But at the same time, let's not overreact for every situation and bl- just start pointing blame. I mean, we need to look at where the blame actually should lie. You know what I'm saying? And I don't even know if there is a blame. I'm starting the with the man in the mirror. You are? Are you going to ask him to make that change? <laughs> Asking him to change his ways. <laughs> I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> okay, so Carnell had in his locker, here's a little aside to that story right at the end, had in his locker at the time a copy of Stephen King's novel Rage, which was first published in 1997 under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. It's part of the Bachman book series. I don't know if you guys are Stephen King fans. I've read most of his things. Uh, After this shooting, though, King requested his publisher to allow it to finally go out of print, fearing that it might inspire other tragedies. So King heard about this and took it upon himself because it's his work, you know, to censor that book. And that's the only way I think people have a right to censorship. You know what I'm saying? If he views it as something that could inspire or hurt somebody and he wanted to get rid of it, that's up to him because he was the creator. I don't think Congress should be stepping in and saying, you know, Psycho is against the morals of our society or James Dean's against the morals of our society or Elvis Presley is against the morals of our society and just come in and just start pulling that dumb shit they always do. You know, let's get scared of something or create a situation to make you think we're scared of something just for publicity and votes. And let's rile up a big shit storm for nothing. You know I mean? We got way more to worry about like, like these actual killings, like what's causing it. I don't think video games are, there's mental health issues with this kid. 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel like they're gonna just like reach out and blame whatever they can for whatever reason. Well, it must be the video games. Yeah, and I know we vote people in, but who makes certain people the absolute in the um, in the moral authority? You know what I'm saying? Like the Joseph McCarthy bullshit hearings in the 40s and 50s, going after Hollywood and musicians and everything, and then you know the comic books authority in the 1940s and 50s and i mean even today you know we we had a landmark hearing not getting political but we had a pretty landmark hearing and it's a very divided country on this but i think there's a lot more of uh people that are against the ruling than there are for it and i think the minority ended up winning out in this one so mm-hmm. what do you know. think about that trent <laughs> Well, we won't get into that, but I, I agree <laughs> on the surface there. That's all I'll say. We won't get into that. That's a whole can of worms. But this is a very you, timely episode now that I think about it, like with everything going look, on in the country today. So, But Trent, you love worms. Well, that's that's really the reason <laughs> I, I, I wrote this. When I, when I wrote this a few weeks ago, it was right after the shootings. And <clears throat> I started thinking about that. And I started thinking, you know, this actually inspired some of these shootings that came right immediately after the movie supposedly by the by the actual shooters saying it you know it wasn't just like congress saying oh it must be the movies they were actually saying that natural born killers was a movie they watched and loved and you could see where they kind of emulated it so here's our third incident and this is the most famous one of all on april 20th 1999 students eric harris and dylan klebold murdered 12 students and one teacher at columbine high school near littleton colorado The massacre ended with both perpetrators committing suicide. It has been confirmed that both Harris and Klebold were fans of Natural Born Killers. Prior to the massacre, they had used the initials NBK as their codes on everything. In a journal entry dated April 10th, 1998, Harris wrote, When I go NBK and people say that, like, oh, it was so tragic or, oh, that shit's crazy, or it was so bloody, just because your mommy and daddy told you blood and violence is bad, you think it's a fucking law of nature. Wrong. Only science and math are true. Everything, and I mean every fucking thing else, is man-made. Before I leave this worthless place, I will kill whoever I deem unfit for anything at all, especially life. (laughs) Harris also referred to April 20th as the Holy April Morning of NBK. So, wow. in an updated journal, in an updated journal entry, so he he was writing in his journal beforehand. They were talking a lot about it, and I think some students actually knew about this and their their bold talk beforehand. I mean, obviously, this is pre social media, uh, but people knew about it quite quite strongly knew about it. And uh, Cleobode, who was severely depressed, wrote in that journal, "I'm stuck in humanity." maybe going MBK with Eric as a way to break free. During one of their basement tapes, so they had these group of uh, VHS tapes where they taped themselves talking, uh, found that Harrison Klebold's home, found in Harrison Klebold's home, the perpetrators mentioned how Hollywood will want to adapt their life story and the debate on whether or not Steven Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino, or Quentin Tarantino, who r- conceived and partially wrote Natural Born Killers, are appropriate choices to direct the film. So, 
I don't know if you've seen all the stuff. I'm not going to go crazy into that whole story because it's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of mythological stuff about different victims and stuff like that that people tried to attach to it. I think to, to get some censorship going or even the gun control people on the left used against gun manufacturers and stuff. So it's, I don't want to get political on that side, but once again, this is a direct link, but these guys actually talk about natural born killers in their letters. So, I mean, it was a violent film. But but to me though, to me though, the things he was writing down, the first thing you read, that was pretty fucked up. And like, yeah, so this kid's fucked up in the head, regardless of this, if this movie existed or not. You know what I mean? Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe the movie was kind of that final push. I don't know. But like, come on. He would have been, he would have had these thoughts anyway. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. He wasn't just some regular, you know, upstanding citizen that just happened to watch this movie. Then all of a sudden, like a light switch flipped in his head. Like he was going to, he was going to hurt somebody or do something messed up regardless. In my opinion, just that's what I think yeah. from that. And he would have he would have found an outlet probably anywhere. I don't think. I don't think. I guess this is going to sound political. I don't want to get too. There's no way not to sound this. political on this episode. I just know. Go for it. I'm a teacher. Okay, I'm also mm-hmm. a gun owner. I've also been trained to shoot guns a little bit. I also carry a. a personal protection permit here in the state of Indiana. I have no problem shooting guns. I would probably have qualms shooting a person, but being in a situation, I probably would. But I mean, some of the people's talking points every time about, you know, like what's going on in our country with guns and gun violence and violence in schools and stuff absolutely floors me because they don't trust, like the government doesn't trust, and the people sometimes don't trust teachers for anything. They complain about everything the school systems do. The government is trying to shut down public schools to get charter schools going because that's money in their back pockets. And then now they're talking about, like, let's put all kinds of armed guards and, and you know, stuff around the schools so people can't bring guns in and, and let's arm teachers and this and that. And while that sounds like a cool idea at the same time, like it goes back to like, if they're going to sit there and make the argument that you can kill somebody with a hammer, then why would that stop the kids from trying to find ways to kill people? How's that a deterrent? And, and once again, I love cops. I've got cop friends. I've got cop relatives, but cops are usually reactionary. They don't, Mm -hmm. they don't stop crime. They're the threat of stopping crime. And that threat only works on people that want to not do anything truly deep down. You know what I'm saying? They're too scared or too. Yeah. These, these, these kids committed suicide. They were not scared of doing any of this stuff. They weren't scared. These were 16, 17 year old kids. They were not scared of putting a gun to their own heads after it was over. And most of these killers aren't really scared of any repercussions not at all because either and they are suicide they are you know end up killing themselves or they just are too messed up in the head to even think about consequences so my big thing is like what are we 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 sit here and have these conversations every three to six months now 
and never get anywhere. We don't put more money into mental health when they yell mental health issues. We don't put it more money into like kids programs when they're younger to make them feel like they're part of something. We don't put social programs in for people that have no dads. We want to take all that away from them and say, well, it sucks that you were born that way. We want to, we want to take away abortion rights and make them <laughs> have kids that are in that situation. And then we don't want to do anything about the gun control and say, you know, what would be smart gun control? What would that look like? We're not even wanting to have a conversation with each other about it. Yeah. It's like all or nothing. And I don't think the left, you know, wants full gun control. And if they do, they're friggin' morons. But because it's never going to happen in America, I think we're just a country born on violence. Right. But I also think that if we don't have a conversation, this is never going to stop because, yeah, you can kill somebody with a hammer or a knife or whatever, and you might. If you take all guns away, you still might. But letting a 16-year-old kid have bullet button weaponry with huge clips and come in, and, and these kids made bombs. They had layout plans for the school and this and that. It doesn't matter how how prepared we are. If they've got access to all that shit, they're going to do it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They had access, and they did it. The person that just had the shooting last time had access, and he did it. The person that killed the black people in the church had access, and they did it. It's like, if you've got access, like, I just don't understand it. I don't understand what having no gun control or or all or nothing, I don't understand that whole all or nothing kind of mentality right now we've got i mean it's just nobody's wanting to reach across the aisle and say this is fucked up let's figure something out and it's never it's not changing i don't think i don't think it's going to change okay, so this is pretty I don't think fucked up. we should figure something out let's find a solution right here and now on the horror right here on the horror you know <laughs> you heard it here first but I, I mean, honestly, if if they told me, like, if they said, okay, every school is going to, we just made it state, Indiana State Legislature, because I could see Indiana doing something like this, to be honest. Indiana State Legislature said we had to have five teachers on staff that are trained to kill, or trained to... <laughs> trained to kill. Tra- tra- trained to License prevent to kill. attacks. <laughs> yeah. Teachers? That's basically, that's basically what they're wanting to do, right? They're, they think teachers, oh, you should be able to, to protect our kids. It's like... I'll be honest with you. School for exactly. I'll be honest with you. They just break your finger. <laughs> I could imagine me, maybe me and two other teachers that would be willing to do that, and I would be apprehensive. You know, and I've been around guns a long time, but I would be apprehensive about doing that because it brings a whole ball of wax. That, like, think about this. Okay, you own a gun, Ian, right? Uh are you a gun owner? I do. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am not. Uh, Wells is. I, oh. I am not. Wells is. Okay. So I've got three guns right now. I've had as many as six. In his hands probably. right now. Put them down, Right please. now. <laughs> You're scaring me. <laughs> I, look, I look like a, one of those Mexican banditos with the <laughs> bullet bullet belts across my shoulder. Bullet belts. So, so I uh, I own guns, and I'm telling you right now, 
the odds of me protecting my family and getting up in the middle of the night if somebody wants to come in and kill me are lower than you think. Like, I would probably not survive and my family would not survive if someone had wanted to come into my house and kill me, right? If they were smart enough to do it and get past my motion detector or something, they would probably kill me. Or, you know, out in public, even if I carry. The odds are, unless I sneak up behind them somehow, I'm not going to prevent any kind of crime and I'm not going to save other people. Maybe. I mean, it happens, but it happens so infrequently that it's almost not even a statistic, right? Now, you'll see stuff yeah. on online showing somebody in a bank or something pulling out a gun and shooting a robber. Oh, this man, good thing he was carry, concealed carrying. It's like, yeah, that's one video, but how many crimes per day go on with nothing happening? How many crimes per day that cops don't stop, you know? I mean, that's what we talk about half the time in the podcast or murders and stuff. It, it, you don't prevent them. You're just reactionary to them, right? Now, I do feel safer with a gun if I'm in a situation like that than if I don't have one, I'm sure. But statistically, it, it's not, it's not going to happen. So, like, them trying to get me to do something like that, yes, I might save some kids. I might. But at the same time, I might not. I might, what if I accidentally shot a kid? What if I got too nervous? What if, I mean, think about that. Cops, they don't get enough training. They really don't. They don't get enough de-escalation training. They don't get enough psychological training. They get weaponry training, but I don't know... I don't know certain cops. I don't know if they're ready for certain situations. Most cops never pull their gun in their entire career. So, you know, I mean, what would make a homeowner be better at that? Or what would make a teacher especially be better at that in the classroom? You know? I don't know. I don't know. These are conversations people need to have. And I don't feel like they ever have any conversations like that. They just argue back and forth because people want something and other people don't, and it only affects you if it happens to you or your family. Well, you know? nobody's willing to listen to the other side. Like they'll they'll say that, like, "Oh, just talk it out," and then it's an hour long debate because neither side wants to budge, and it's just like, "Oh, we we'll just agree to disagree," and it becomes such an aggressive conversation. When, yeah, like you said, it could just be like a friendly, just a friendly debate of like. You know, I have an opinion on something. You have an opinion. We'll share our opinions. If we don't agree, we don't agree. But, but yeah, like, there are some, like, debates that they get so heated, like, you lose a friendship over it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen it happen. Over a difference sad. of opinion. And I don't yeah, know if it's just I mean, the difference of opinion, but it's how you express your difference of opinion. Yeah. I mean, people, people are not willing to listen anymore. They're just waiting to talk a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Just waiting no. on the world. They're to not change. like <laughs> waiting. They're not. They're not like the uh, horror, you know, podcast. They're not listening to each other. That's right. We feed off each. We're other. We're all in this together, people. All of you, all of you fans out there, we're all in this together, baby. Is that right, Trent? Yeah, Woody Harrelson, great actor. Love him. <laughs> Love him. <laughs> I thought you were going to give me some High School Musical. We're all in this together. <laughs> so, 
We got another one here. Richardson family murders. At 1 p.m. on April 23rd, 2006, the bodies of husband Mark Richardson, 42, and wife Deborah were found in the basement of their home. The body of their son, Jacob, uh, eight years old, was discovered upstairs. Absent from the home at the time of the couple was the couple's 12-year-old daughter. For a time, it's feared that she might have been a victim, but she was arrested the following day in the community of Leader, Saskatchewan, about 81 miles away with her 23-year-old boyfriend. 23-year-old boyfriend. she's 12? 12 years old. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's like <laughs> Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. She, she was 15 at least, I guess. Jeremy Allen Stanley. Stanky. Stanky. Stanky? Is it stanky? Stanky. That's stank. Looks like Stein and K-E. Stank. Anyway, both were charged with three murders. Later on May 3rd, 2006, uh, Stanky's friend, Casey Lancaster, 19, was charged with being an accessory to murder for later in the day, driving them away in her pickup and for disposing of evidence from the crimes. According to friends of the daughter, the girl's parents had punished her for dating the boy due to the age disparity. Duh. Her friends also criticized their relationship. Shortly after her arrest, she or the boy asked her to marry him, and she agreed. According to friends of Steinke, he told them he thought he was a 300-year-old werewolf. There's a turn. <laughs> oh, my God. What? He allegedly told his friends that he liked the taste of blood, and he wore a small vial of blood around his neck. He also had a user account name at vampirefreaks.com website. The girl had a page on that same site leading to the speculation that's where they met. However, an acquaintance of Steinke later said the couple actually met at a punk rock concert in early 2006, early 2006, which makes me think she's 12 years old. What the hell is her parents letting her go to a punk rock show for? Right. I mean, I did that, but I don't know about her. About this the girl at the rock show. <laughs> yeah. Did you wear blood around Co- your neck means? Uh, only if it was Angelina Jolie's, but Ooh. besides that, no. <laughs> So the couple were also found to be communicating at Nexopia, a popular website for young Canadians. <laughs> eh? Various messages <laughs> they sent to each, each were available to the public before the accounts were removed by Nexopia taf, staff. Half. What the fuck am I saying? The daughter's user page under the name Runaway Devil falsely said she was 15 and ended with the text... Welcome to my tragic end. Just hours prior to committing the murders, Steinke and some friends reportedly watched the film Natural Born Killers, a 1994 film about a young couple who commit violent killings. Steinke asserted to his friends that he and his girlfriend should go out about their plans in a similar manner, but without sparing his girlfriend's younger brother. Steinke said to an undercover officer, you ever watched the movie Natural Born Killers? I think that's the best love story of all time. So, so I don't know if you remember the scene they killed. She let they let the brother go, so that's kind of how they knew that because he basically told them that they were going to not spare the younger brother, which he was found dead. Anyway, yeah, werewolves, vampires. 
I think we need to go back to every famous killer and just see what the last movie they watched was because, I mean, you could make a direct link. I think so. Maybe Ted Bundy watched, watched like Caddyshack or something before going out and I watched, murdering people. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to start blaming? Are we oh, going to start blaming that movie now? <laughs> Oh, it's a baby Ruth. <laughs> oh so God. in September, here's a couple more. I'm just going to, these are really brief. September 94, a 14-year-old boy from Dallas, to Texas, decapitated a 13-year-old classmate in his middle school. When asked why he did this, he allegedly said it was because he wanted to be famous like in the natural-born killers. Oh, yeah, they keep coming. In October of 94, a 17-year-old Nathan Martinez from Bluffdale, Utah, shot and killed his stepmother and 10-year-old half-sister while they slept. He was apprehended three days later in Nebraska following a nationwide manhunt. Martinez was allegedly obsessed with the film and claims to have seen it at least 10 times in the week prior to the murders. He'd even shaved his head the way Mickey does at the end of the movie and had taken to wearing the same style of round uh, rimmed sunglasses. And then on March 5th, 1995 in Sonoya, Georgia, 15 year old Jason Lewis shot and killed his parents after allegedly deciding he wanted to emulate Mickey and Mallory, Lewis was on the telephone talking to a friend discussing how he's planning to kill his mother and father and leave for the road when he suddenly announced, I'm going to do it. According to the friend, as he listened to, to it on the phone, he heard Lewis shooting both parents. He grabbed his father's 12-gauge shotgun, shot his mother first, sitting in her recliner. The shot didn't kill her, and she screamed. He fired again, hitting his father lying on a nearby couch. A third shot to his mother's face killed her instantly. A fourth shot to his father's forehead killed him instantly. According to Lewis's friend, Lewis then calmly returned to the phone and announced, I did it. It's done. <laughs> okay. Wow. Subsequently discovered that Lewis was one of the four young boys who planned to kill their parents and embark on a cross-country killing spree. Uh, that they'd seen in the film. All four boys were arrested during interrogation when asked why he did it. Lewis told investigators that's because his parents had imposed a midnight curfew on him. How dare they? So uh, these other kids kind of punked out, good thing, and he went through with it, and he's the only one that got charged with murder. So, <laughs> You guys, I thought we all were going to do it, guys. And to save time, we're over an hour right now, so... There were there were about five more incidents within the '90s that were actually blamed on this film. So there was, I mean, there, you're seeing right there. There's at least what what did I say like nine, ten different incidents. Mm -hmm. Some of them very famous that were kind of tied into this film. So that's the reason I wanted to talk about the controversy. And it kind of, you know, I mean, I don't understand where people are like blaming media and stuff like that when in fact. Even before media was a thing, we were a violent nation. You know what I'm saying? We've yeah. been a violent nation. And it, to me, it's like a, a symptomatic thing that people just in America, like, eat and breathe this type of violence. And it's not cartoonish to some people. You know what I'm saying? Like, people that listen to this podcast and people like us that watch horror movies, I have fun with it. I don't see this violence is being anything but fantasy or cartoons, you know, like it's just, it's, it's not real to me. I don't watch vampires and think they're real. I don't watch play doom and think it's real, but 
I don't know. I, I think a lot of it's these kids are looking for something to blame too, you know, or the the people that are trying to get them out of trouble are looking for something to blame. That way they can get them out of trouble, and then like media and congressmen latch onto it like idiots. Yeah, I think it's just that common sense thing. Going back to that you said earlier, I feel like there's like that line between people that are mentally stable and mentally unstable, and the ones that are can watch stuff like that and and react to it like you just said, like it's fantasy. And then the other people take it too seriously, and that's where you get deranged people from. Yeah. And and I don't I don't think it's necessarily just the media. It's just those people. I think they use that as an outlet, and then they they start their their mind just warps into where they're they're thinking that that's something that they can get get done or make them famous or whatever. I mean, they use it to their advantage in some way. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's bullshit that parents of these kids or, you know, I'm not saying blame the parents, but I am saying when a kid has access to your guns, you know, like, for example, the Sandy Hook thing, you know, I think it's bullshit. People were just trying to trying to say that wasn't something that could be prevented. That woman absolutely took a kid that had some mental problems to gun ranges and he knew everything about guns and violence. And, and to me, that's not a good hobby for somebody that has problems, you know, or young kids, even like, I don't mind if kid hunts or whatever, but when you take kids out to gun ranges and shoot off 1500 rounds in a day and then blow shit up with tannonite and, like just start thinking that way to where you're, Oh, it's cool to cause destruction and violence all the time. And you get into that. Like there's kids, absolutely kids that are 16, 17 years old that I know they're obsessed with this stuff. They're obsessed with the power that these guns give them. And you put that in the wrong hands of somebody and it's totally legal. You put that in the wrong hands of somebody and that's where, where it spells disaster. You know, and I don't know how to curb it. I don't know. I don't know what the gun laws actually are in each state because each state has different gun laws. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know the the laws in every state. But I tell you what, you look at the correlation between the states that have more strict gun laws. They have less violent crime. They are less gun related violent crime or they have. You know, less deaths involving guns and stuff like that. And you look at those the States. I mean, I think Chicago's like an anomaly because it's a big city, but like Illinois, if you take some of Chicago out of the equation, Illinois is way smaller in gun violence than Indiana, you know, or Kentucky or I don't know. Do you guys, are you guys on TikTok? Do you guys do TikTok at all? Uh, no. I mean, I'll, I'll skim through it every now and again, but like I don't actually TikTok per se. But every now and again, I'll look like it. I'll, you I'll at least at watch it. it. So there's this guy, and he's he's got he's got like kind of I wouldn't say like viral with it, but he has kind of went viral, I guess, with his first post. But he did like a uh, spreadsheet, and he took all these like facts and figures on this spreadsheet from all of the states and all of their gun laws and all of their violent deaths and their shootings and police interactions with guns and this, I mean, it was just, 
he just kept he keeps on adding things and then you know how you how sheets works right or excel documents where you click on something and you could actually like have it like order stuff on what you click on or whatever right mm-hmm. so he'll go he'll go around and he'll click on stuff and he he usually has them in you know a through z categories but then he'll go through on his like tiktoks and he'll click on certain things that he just put in or whatever and it's crazy looking at the patterns every one of them are patterned after red state blue state and nra voting and it's scary it's really really scary so to me it's like if you can actually see the real patterns of those things like that and the numbers match up then something needs to be done somehow. The gun laws that we have in those states are not working. So what do we need to do? Let's have a conversation. What do we need to do to change and see if that changes the numbers? Because like people are like, well, you know, they have speed laws, speed limit laws, but people still speed. I'm like, yeah, but you still have to have the law. You know, I don't tell a little kid not to touch a hot stove because it's silly I tell him because I don't want him to burn himself. Now, if he decides to burn himself, he's going to learn one time, right? But you still have to try to tell him as a, as a parent. So I don't understand where people are like, well, it's freedom of this, freedom of that. And there are some gun laws, you know, <laughs> I think they're few and far between. We have way more laws on other significantly less things than we do on guns for sure. You know, like marijuana. There's more laws against marijuana in most states than there are gun control. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about it, Trent. This is a weird episode because I can't, I can't tell when you guys are buried yeah, to we jump can't in. See each so other. I, like, I feel like I'm talking the whole time. I'm trying to show restraint because I'm not an overly political person, but I feel like if I get too much into it, it'll just turn into a big political discussion. And I'm not saying that that's bad necessarily, but I mean... It's not necessarily what we do. I don't want to turn viewers or listeners off, but I want them to understand everybody has an opinion and and everything, and we need to like res- not only respect that, but listen to each other. Like we need to like seriously have conversations because if we don't, this country is just going to go continue to spiral the way it is. I think. I mean, I feel like the last six years have been seven years have been. On a weird cycle, I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, definitely gonna agree with that. Kind of like this podcast episode tonight. It's been on a weird it cycle. Is a weird. Yeah. We're a little out of our element because we're we're not we're not used to not being able to see each other's see smiling each other, faces, smell each other, missing out on a lot tonight. Lick each other. Lick each other. I mean, yeah. smell <laughs> each other. <laughs> what? <laughs> So the movie, let's talk about the movie because all that stuff was depressing. Yes. That was a depressing little aside, but I wanted to go into it because I think it was uh, topical. It's important. It is. So this movie is one of Oliver Stone's big, uh, big films as far as like box office because he got, I think Platoon was probably his biggest, but jfk didn't do well but this one did all right after it was out for a while but it didn't initially do well but you guys were pretty young when this came out so you guys probably didn't see this till later correct or did you see it when it came out 
I actually saw it around the time it came out. So you were probably what? You 11, sick fuck. 12. <laughs> what year was this? 94? Uh, 94, 95, yeah. Somewhere in there. 94. Yeah, I was probably, I was probably about 8. So I'm, I might have not seen it exactly when it came out. It might have been a few years later. So yeah, I probably was. You were first uh, in line, 10, weren't you? Give me one for that saw. NDK, please. I was, Natural Born Killers, please. <laughs> so I... The movie, when I first saw it, I saw it probably on video. So I, it was after it came out in theaters for a while. And back then, it was usually, I think it was an eight to nine month turnaround after theaters before a video came out. Yeah, it was a while. Yeah, it was almost a year. It wasn't quite a year. I mean, I remember back in the days when it was over a year before you'd see a movie out of the theater. But yeah. This was a little under a year, so I probably, and actually at that time, I might have been working at a video store, I don't know, but uh, I just remember taking it home on VHS and watching it, and then I watched it a second time the same night, because it just kind of blew me away, and I think it was because that was the early days, or mid-range days of the MTV-style editing, so like... I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about because you see it in movies all the time now, but yes. it was kind of a newer, newer yeah. style back then, you know, to where you didn't see, like, movies were slower paced up into the early 90s. And then somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, like, the movies started getting quicker and quicker. And I think... I read a stat about it saying that there was, like... I'm looking it up now because I can't remember the exact number, but, like, a certain number of cuts in this film. And it was, like, a crazy high number. Oh, there's a lot of cutting. I'm looking it up, though, because I feel like without the actual number, the stat is kind of... Supposedly, Oliver Stone has like a four-hour version of this movie that was never released. I'm kind of glad. <laughs> I am, too, because this yeah. is kind of an exhausting movie because it really of its is. editing and, and its style and everything. It's like a violent Boz Lerman movie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Which, by the way, I just went and watched Here, Elvis, and I loved it. But here's I the, am an Elvis fan. I hate, sorry to interrupt. Here's the here's the fun Go fact ahead. I just referenced. It says the film contains almost three thousand cuts. Most films have between six hundred and seven hundred. Uh, Jeez. Negative cutter Dona Bassett cut four thousand negative images into the film. The most complex job ever undertaken by a negative cutter. So there you go. Three thousand cuts, roughly. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Imagine what that would look like on a digital <laughs> on like premiere pla- timeline. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I would hate I would hate myself. Yeah. I think at a certain I mean, point they ha- probably just started throwing shit in. They didn't even care what the- <laughs> So yeah, throw that in. You'd have to be in. you'd have to be like really really uh technical though as far as not only editing but just his directing style. You'd have to be like logging all this shit, you know, the assistant director to have a Huge log of what the film numbers were and everything. Yeah, would be crazy. Huge log. Yeah. <laughs> Ian perked up a I huge ho- log. I hope he has a huge yeah, log. You had me a huge log. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, did you guys like this film? Let's let's just start off with that. Let's go around the room. In let's play rooms. another round of Did Ian like it? Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> did Ian like I it? I hate this game. Hi, I'm Ian, <laughs> and I didn't hate it. 
Uh, no, I, I appreciated it for what it was. Like, it was really stupid and silly, but I feel like that's what he was going for. Like, I, I, I've seen all these actors in, in other movies and, and, and TV shows and stuff, and they are, they are all good actors, and I feel like they were going over the top on purpose because that's what Oliver Stone was going for. So, for that campy, silly, cheesy style movie... Um, I was okay with it. I, I didn't. I didn't hate it because of how silly it was. Um, it did get a little too silly at times. I think the first act was really slow for me and a little too silly, and I was just like, nah. And any time like you throw Rodney Dangerfield in there, I know something dumb's gonna happen, and uh, that's fine because I love me some Rodney Dangerfield. But all that was just kind of really weird but then when it started like move into the second and third act i thought it, i thought it got more interesting and a little bit more in, more intense so to say yeah yeah i mean it, it absolutely seemed like uh multiple movies in one thing you know for sure oh yeah i would agree with ian in that when i first started watching the movie i was not liking it and then i did it did kind of grow on me as it went and i think that is because in the second and third acts they kind of that style, that fast-paced style, it wasn't there as much, and it was more linear of a story, I guess. Because the first, you know, what, 30 minutes or so with all the quick cuts. I mean, that was still there later, but not as much. But then they had, like, that sitcom little section. They had, like, little weird animated sections, and it was just kind of all over the place. And it was just really just exhausting to watch and keep up with. But then it did get better towards, mm. like, like Ian said, towards the middle and end. It was just a little... A little more like an actual movie, I guess, at that point. Yeah. So, my take on it when I first watched it, it just it was weird, like you like you guys both just said. It was it was very fast paced, and it was almost like a sensory overload. Yeah. But then when I watched it later on, and I I always like go way beyond what I should probably <laughs> thinking about what's this really mean and what's the what's the psychological thing that the director is trying to tell me here. But I've, I've seen interviews afterwards of Oliver Stone and what he was going for. And I feel like some of these senators and especially John Grisham trying to help that woman sue him, which is ridiculous. What an asshole. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, John Grisham, if you're listening to this, you're an asshole, but it, they didn't really get the point of the movie because the point was how crazy and chaotic people people view this like almost worship of killers and worship of non-star stars. I don't know how you would say that, but like people that shouldn't be stars, but it's celebrity because of infamy. Famous you know for the wrong saying? reasons, yeah. Yeah, they're infamous. So, and people, I feel like a lot of these spree killers look for that. But I love how, like, it showed, you know, that there's a seedy underbelly. Like, I, I understand the uh, sitcom kind of I Love Lucy thing because it was like there's a seedy underbelly to what people actually thought American nuclear families were. And... And so he was like really touching on that. And then he goes into touching on the celebrity and how these people are marginalized in, in society. And then they, the way they lash out is either through violence or drugs or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And then they, they go to, uh, 
the ending, the middle to the ending is all about kind of the Robert Downey story of how media feeds into this shit. And it, I feel like the people that were looking at this movie were looking at the wrong kind of concept of what it actually was supposed to mean. It was like, he was pointing a finger to me at not just the media and not just our idea of what American life is, but also the people that bought into that and, and tried to get this fame from it. And I don't know if people quite got it. Like these kids that were killers, it seems like they didn't get it. They were like, Oh, the fucking killing's cool. Look how cool this is to kill your parents and go on a killing spree. Well, that's why I think that all the arguments against this movie and why it's responsible, I think, are stupid. Because it's like, no, if you watch the movie, you would know that it's not what it's trying to say at all. It's not telling you to go out and kill and that it's a cool thing to go be a killer. It's saying that that's what the media and everyone else props it up like. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. For sure. That seemed kind of, I don't want to say it obvious, but it seemed obvious kind of if you watched the movie. But ironically... The media does do that, though. They do prop these killers up. I know. And and we kind of buy into it because we watch movies about it and Mindhunter and, and stuff like that. It's like so fascinating to watch evil. You know, it's so fascinating to watch well, I mean, train wrecks. True crime documentaries and podcasts are still like all the rage even today. So, I mean, yep. it's still a and thing. We're one of them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Don't turn your dials. You keep it locked in right here. We do love to watch evil. That's why we sit across from Wells all the time. Watch him. Just keep an eye on him. His damn, his damn Always buggy eyes when he looks at you. <laughs> <laughs> love that dude. We it, would be interesting. it would be interesting to get his commentary on this episode. Not going to lie. But also feel a little oh, yeah, safer sure. without it. <laughs> we love you. We love you, buddy. We know you're listening. He was probably like, yeah, I loved it. I was taking notes. <laughs> All right, what? He's like, I wonder if they do a documentary about me. Tarantino, <laughs> who's going to direct it? Yeah. Who's going to star as me? So I have nothing else on this movie or the stories that it influenced. We'll come back to that. The Starkweather murders from the 50s. We'll, we'll do I, another movie. I will add to my critique of the movie, I guess, before we wrap up. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much if it had anyone else in the roles because I actually do really enjoy I enjoy a good Woody. I'll say it. Uh, <laughs> I really do like I really do like Woody Harrelson, and I think he has. I don't know if it would be right to call him underrated or not because I don't know if he's underrated, but he does have a lot of range. I think he's a great actor, and I think he was great in this movie, and even uh, Juliette Lewis, who I don't normally always like in a lot of movies. She's kind of one of those actresses that can kind of, I don't know, get under your skin or something. But she actually was really good in this movie. And Robert Downey Jr. was hilarious. And even <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones was hilarious. So I think the cast really helped elevate what would have probably otherwise been a movie I wouldn't have personally liked as much. Also, the the end where they have Tommy Lee Jones on the, on like the on spike a bike and then marching <laughs> in there. Yes. Yeah. The ending was freaking nuts. Tom Sizemore did a good role too, but apparently he was like fucked up the whole time they were filming. Uh, yeah, yeah like say, isn't he usually? Right. <laughs> yeah. But. So apparently there were a lot of uh, different choices for these characters, and they didn't originally want Woody Harrelson or her in the role. I read. 
I've got IMDb trivia pulled up. Let me see if I can find anything about that. <laughs> you I, always do, my friend. That's why, I'm, that's why I mentioned it, because I remember reading it on there, and I figured he would throw that in. Um, there's quite a few to scroll through on this. I don't know. I'll see. You guys keep talking. I'll see what jumps out. But Woody Harrelson had played another character later on that uh, kind of like was similar to this. He was a cop that was an alcoholic. I can't remember the name of the movie. Rampart or something like that. But I think his range is is amazing because like a lot of people just view him as being comedic. And I think when he's not comedic is sometimes when he's better because he can be a scary dude. I don't know Who why. Who are you talking about? I'm sorry, I was reading. Woody Harrelson. Oh, I think when he's not funny, sometimes he's scary as hell. He is really, yeah, I agree with that. That's why I think he has such great range. Have you seen the movie, um, oh, what's it called? Out of the Furnace? Yep. He's yep. really scary in that movie. He's like some backwoods kind of meth head or something. I don't. I haven't seen it in a while, but very scary, very intimidating. In that That's the one with Chris, Christian Bell's in that? Yeah, he has to like go save his brother from all those backwoods. Yeah. People that are like, I don't know if they have like a fight club or what it was about. I don't remember. But yeah. Juliette Lewis was also in a movie called California with uh, David Duchovny and uh, can't remember his name. Guy that was married to Angelina Jolie. Why am I forgetting? Anyway, pretty boy, Brad Pitt. She was, he was. Brad Pitt was in a movie with David Duchovny and Juliette Lewis, and Brad Pitt played like a serial killer that was like a hillbilly trailer park guy, and she was like his girlfriend. She was like dumb as a box of rocks, but for some reason, she just owned that role, and it was the funniest thing I've ever seen, even though it was about a serial killer. So, yeah. I guess I'm screwing my point up a while ago about glorifying serial killers. <laughs> I just remember Brad Pitt looking at her and saying, put your titties back in your shirt, eh, Dale? <laughs> Speaking of also good performances and being scary, shout out, I think you mentioned him earlier, but shout out to Rodney Dangerfield. There's a trivia thing here. It says that Rodney Dangerfield wrote all of the filthy stuff his character said. Oliver Stone didn't give him a script. He simply told Dangerfield he was going to play the father from hell. So... I thought that was a pretty effed up role and scene. Like we talked about the sitcom style that it was kind of playing against, but he was like this abusive, molesting father. And I don't know. I thought that was a really, I thought he played it really good. Rodney Dangerfield did. Yeah. His, his eyes are already like buggy and crazy looking. Him talking about having sex with her and just being all creepy. Like that whole thing, that whole scene, which I know it was the point, but it just was very uncomfortable watching it because, you know, you've got that like lighthearted music and whimsical sitcom vibe, but then he's saying all these weird, gross, effed up things to her and like squeezing her ass and everything. And it's just like, it's like I don't know how to feel watching this. <laughs> I really feel for Juliette Lewis too because like she was coming off of that uh, Robert De Niro film. What was that called? Scorsese. Oh, about the stalker? Yeah. What's um, that called? It had Nick Nolte in it. Yes, it's a good movie. Hold she on. played a she played a young girl that got almost molested by Robert De Niro in that one. Stuck his thumb in her mouth without her even knowing it. Come on, Ian, help us out. 
It's driving me crazy. I know the movie. Cape You're Fear. About, uh, yes. Cape Fear. Yes. Yeah. Well done. De Niro like didn't tell her he was gonna stick his thumb in her mouth, and he did, and then she sucked it. That's that's <laughs> fucked up. That's fucked just up. Just went right with there. it. Just went with it. So you got some more trivia? Uh, there's there's too much really to kind of yeah to kind of go through. It's a it's an interesting movie. I I suggest anybody that's a serious film person to watch it at least once. I mean, I wouldn't say it would be my favorite film of all time <laughs> to watch. But I will watch it every now and then just because I know it's a it's an interesting film to partake in. So yeah. Oliver Stone doesn't doesn't disappoint on most of his films I've ever seen by him. So even though I think he's batshit crazy. I would probably agree with that. Well that's all I got, boys. You guys got anything else? Uh no, I think that pretty much sums it up. All right. Well, we have once again all of our socials. Get on there and check us out on Twitter and Facebook, the Horror You Know podcast. We also have something cool coming up. We're actually doing this. We've talked about like T-shirts and all that shit, but we haven't really done anything on that too much. Hopefully, we will someday. But we're actually starting a. Uh, we're kind of helping sponsor a film festival in our hometown of Madison, Indiana. And it's called the Horror at the Ohio. So any of you listeners that uh, like horror films and like helping out like local theaters and stuff like that, we're going to have an international film festival in October of this year. This year, October 20th and 21st, I think, uh, at the Ohio Theater in Madison, Indiana. The film festival is called Horror at the Ohio Check that out on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and there's a website and just go in there and like it and start looking for updates because and film we've got freeway a lot of crazy stuff. Film freeways where yeah. you submit if you want to submit something. Yes, if you have a film that you'd like us to look at, because I've looked at a lot of crazy shit in the last two weeks for this. <laughs> What's it over 330 films now? You said I've looked at. That you've looked Something at like probably. I think that, total we're that. close to like five hundred, which is ridiculous. Yeah, we've had we've, a lot. We've, we've still got till films. October <laughs> to go. So, well, I, I think we're gonna do a cutoff in August. We'll see. We're gonna have to. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, submit something if it's cool, especially if you think it would be cool at a film festival. Even if not, you know, check it out. Maybe you guys could come in for the weekend, and if you're local or like regional. Come into Madison for the weekend and celebrate with us. And there's going to be a live band and a costume contest, maybe some trivia. We're going to have monsters running around, some merchandise, all kinds of cool stuff. So, yeah, check it out. All right. Well, I this is the Horror You Know podcast. I'm Darren. I'm Trent. And I'm Ian. And we are out of here. So, what's your favorite Rodney Dangerfield movie? Back to school where he does the triple Lindy. <laughs> so now is the time to let all you know.